Do algorithms polarize us? This week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Our social media feeds polarize us by luring us into echo chambers through algorithms that show us what we want to hear, trapping us with viral political content and even spreading misinformation. At least that's the common story. How true is it? Social scientists are now collaborating with social media companies to find out, and four new papers from the collaboration just came out in Science and Nature, all using data from Facebook to test these claims. This week, I talked to Andy Guest at Princeton University, who was a co-author on all of the papers and a lead author on two. The first finds that reducing exposure to content shared by those that agree with you politically doesn't change your political attitudes. The second adds that reducing reshared content doesn't either. In the third paper, they changed algorithmic feeds into just showing you reverse chronological feeds and again didn't change attitudes. But in the fourth paper, they find that some conservative Facebook users are in a media bubble. So some people are in real echo chambers, but they seem to have selected into them. We may not be able to blame the algorithm for our polarization. I think you'll enjoy our conversation. So let's start uh, with uh, your new Nature article that investigates uh, the possibility of echo chambers on on Facebook and some potential uh, causes for them. What were the main findings and takeaways? Yeah, so on this paper, the team was able to do something really unique, which is combine um, a massive descriptive analysis of uh, Facebook platform data and then follow that up with an experiment that actually changed um, what some people saw on their feeds. Um, and so on the descriptive part, um, what was really interesting was the ability to measure the share of um, content from what we're calling like-minded sources. So what like-minded sources refers to in this paper are um, friends, pages, or groups who are predicted to be politically uh, congruent or, or congenial. Uh, so to be clear, this this is not talking about, say, um, web publishers or you know, news publishers or domains. It's actually talking about content that is shared by users, pages, or groups that are predicted to be politically um, similar to, to a user. And so for the first time, what we get is an estimate of the, the share of people's feeds that actually come from like-minded or um, the opposite, uh, cross-cutting sources. So to get a sense of some of the findings you get here, um, the, the median user sees just over half of their content from these like-minded uh, from these like-minded sources. But there's one important caveat to this, which is that when we're talking about like-minded, that's uh, largely content that we wouldn't typically think of as political news. Um, and so when we look at content that was specifically classified as being um, political news and information, that represented a pretty small share of the content, so less than less than 7%. So in this paper, when we're talking about exposure to like-minded uh, content from like-minded sources, um, it's you know, a range of, of content um, that's being sh you know, shared by uh, friends, pages, or groups onto your feeds um, about, uh, that are themselves being predicted to be ideologically similar. Um, and then the maybe the third kind of descriptive point there is that um, you know about a fifth of Facebook users 
are indeed getting a large share of their feed exposures from these like-minded sources. So if you want to think about people who, um, you know, colloquially, we would think of them as, you know, deep in an echo chamber, um, you know, uh, about 20.6% of Facebook users um, are estimated to get over 75% of their exposures from like-minded sources, as opposed to either cross-cutting uh, sources or neither. Um, and so that just sort of puts some numbers to the intuition some people have about um, the extent to which people are on echo chambers, on, on Facebook specifically, um, and um, what that distribution looks like. So then uh, there's an experiment that is conducted on platform with a subset uh, of users. And so having established some of these basic descriptive facts, uh, then the question is, well, what if we could reduce the share of like-minded um, content from like-minded sources that people are seeing on their feeds? Um, this is something that is often either explicitly or explicitly suggested in discussions about how to reform or improve social platforms. Um, and so, uh, you know, this is one of the great benefits of this collaboration is that we were actually able to do that uh, or do a version of that. And so in this experiment, um, a uh, random subset of consented users who were part of this experiment um, were shown, they were given versions of the feed um, that downranked content from like-minded sources by about a third. Um, so essentially these people in this experimental treatment group were seeing a lower share of content from like-minded sources than they would have. And this experiment lasted for three months. Um, so basically encompassing, um, you know, from the end of September uh, for three months through the 2020 election um, and afterwards. Um, and so, you know, what this did was that uh, it did increase exposure to content um, from uh, users, pages, and groups with different uh, political uh, leanings. And, um, and so we could sort of track what the effects of that were on various um, outcomes. And um, there were eight different outcomes um, that uh, were focused on in the paper. Um, so things including effective polarization, um, ideological extremity, um, candidate evaluations, and belief in false claims. And in all of those, um, we were not able to find um, statistically significant effects. Um, so in other words, we didn't detect any um, changes on those outcomes as a result of this intervention. So we're going to be talking through uh, four uh, papers uh, today that, that were published in, in short uh, order um, and that had large co-author lists. Um, so I want to give you a chance to uh, talk about your role um, in, in these um, projects and kind of how they came together. Yeah, sure. So like you said, I mean, there's four papers that came out simultaneously. Um, it's a result of a huge collaboration. And there's actually more papers to come, uh, probably at least uh, a dozen more. Um, and I was a part of the lead author team for two of the papers that came out, um, along with Jen Pan and Neil Malhotra and uh, Pablo Barbera, who's on the meta side. Um, and then, uh, you know, I'm a co-author on all of these papers, um, but I do want to give a shout out to um, all of the, the lead authors on these two. So on the, uh, the like-minded paper that we were just discussing that was published in Nature, the lead authors are Brendan Nyhan, Jamie Settle, Emily Thorson, and Magdalena Wojciechiak. 
um, along with Pablo uh, Barbera again. So, uh, and then on the um, the segregation paper, uh, which uh, we will talk about, um, the two academic leads on that are Sandra Gonzalez Bayon and David uh, Lazar. So, um, and then Joshua Tucker and Talia Stroud are the the PIs of this entire collaboration. Without whom, none of this would have would have happened. So, I really want to give a shout out to them, as well as um, innumerable, incredible um, meta research scientists and engineers um, who worked um, tirelessly with all of us across many of these papers. So, um, needless to say, I'm going to give you my understanding of what we found uh, on these papers. Um, I can't be sure that all of my many illustrious co-authors would have the exact same interpretation of the many uh, many results that are reported in these papers. Uh, I'll do my best uh, to give, uh, give as a, an accurate as a, rep- a representation as I can, um, but I just wanna say that this is, this is mostly coming from, from me and, um, and, and these are my interpretations. So let's uh, stick with uh, the uh, the like-minded sources paper uh, for a second, um, because it does seem that the the null results here on the experiment um, are getting some attention as being um, as undercutting some common claims uh, about uh, people going down uh, rabbit holes or uh, somehow uh, getting into bubbles as a result of, of the way that the, the feed is showing them like-minded content. So uh, is it true that they're, um, you know, they, they are in contrast with that common view? And is there any way to kind of uh, resuscitate uh, the, the view that it is the, the Facebook feed that, that is uh, uh, causing this? Well, there are definitely a number of um, caveats that I think are worth mentioning. So, you know, the experiments that we ran as a part of this project, um, they occurred over a three-month period. Now, um, in in my corner of social science, that's, uh, you know, a longer experiment than I've ever been uh, privileged to be a part of. And I think that's on the, the, the longer end, the far longer end of um, experiments that you'll find in um, social science experiments, especially in the area of political communication. Um, but I can also see why someone might say, well, uh, you know, three months is great, but, um, you know, Facebook has been around um, since uh, 2004, right? And uh, some people have been on these platforms for more than a decade and um, were changing the experience of uh, some people for, you know, three months uh, at the end of this very long period in which, you know, people's attitudes and opinions and experiences may have been shaped um, by by the platforms. And so, you know, that's that's one, um, you know, uh, caveat that you might want to include and that might, um, you know, uh, potentially contextualize uh, some of the the findings and in particular, some of the, the null findings that we have uh, on these on these outcomes. Um, I think another really important thing to keep in mind, and I alluded to that with the point about you know, the share of content that is actually political in people's feeds. Um, but more generally, social media consumption itself is just a fraction of most people's overall information diets, right? So if you take into account um, information that people are getting offline um, through television, um, you know, podcasts, friends, um, you know, uh, talking with with colleagues or coworkers. So um, while you know we were able to 
I think, conduct some pretty strong um, interventions on these platforms in ways that were unprecedented. It's important to keep in mind that um, even if you have the the biggest and most most powerful lever lever that you could imagine um, on a on on one big platform, that's still just a fraction of what people are encountering and the kind of information that people are engaging with um, uh, across the totality of their of their lives. Um, and so I think that's also something to keep in mind when we think about, you know, what are the kinds of reasonable effect sizes that we might expect from, from experiments like this. So you also uh, published an experiment uh, where you stopped uh, showing reshared uh, content on people's uh, Facebook feeds. Uh, and this is another, I guess, common claim that, that you hear is that this is about kind of vi- virality of a few uh, uh, posts um, that might polarize people. Um, but again, you, you found that it did change what people saw, but not, not their attitude. So how would you interpret that? We were able to um, suppress... Uh, reshared content from the feeds of people who are participating in this separate experiment um, that you just referred to. And like you said, uh, that does result in quite a few um, meaningful changes to uh, people's experiences on the platform as well as their engagement. One of the big um, headline findings that popped out immediately to us was that usage of the platform goes down, right? If you just think about uh, overall time spent. Um, that goes down uh, as a result of suppressing reshared content from from people's feeds. So when you suppress reshared content from people's feeds, um, you get some changes uh, that might uh, be expected. So when you um, when you see less reshared content on your feeds, you're on average um, getting less political content. Um, you're also getting less content from uh, untrustworthy sources, right? So um, if you think that uh, reshares and just more generally content that goes viral um, is a vector for misinformation, um, then this is one piece of evidence um, consistent with consistent with that. Um, then when we look down at um, the kinds of effects that we might see on individuals' attitudes um, or behaviors and other kinds of uh, outcomes that we measure using our surveys, we again see this uh, general pattern of limited effects. So very difficult for us to um, distinguish um, any kinds of effects from zero. Um, I would say with one uh, really interesting exception, uh, which is that um, within the sample, we see that when we're removing reshared content from people's feeds, uh, people's levels of news knowledge on average decreases. So basically that means that people's ability to uh, correctly identify events in the news that had happened in the past week in a survey actually degrades, it it, it gets worse. Um, So that might be surprising, um, especially if you think that, you know, reshared content and more broadly speaking, virality um, is spreading kind of, you know, uh, low quality, Um, links to low-quality news, um, things that might be misleading, uh, misinformation, et cetera. Um, But I think what we did is we uncovered a really interesting and counterintuitive nuance here, um, which is that, so A, most of the news about politics that people see in their Facebook feeds uh, come from reshares, full stop. When you take that reshared content out of people's feeds, that means that they are seeing less um, virality 
prone and potentially misleading clickbait, but that also means they're seeing less content from trustworthy sources as well. And since content from trustworthy sources is even more prevalent among reshares than on net, people are actually being exposed to less accurate information. And so that's being reflected in um, people's performance on uh, these, these knowledge questions in the surveys. So in a third uh, experiment, you uh, change the order uh, of uh, items on uh, people's feed uh, to, to be with the reverse chronological feed. Uh, I, this was, of course, what people have been asking for with the threads uh, a competitor uh, to Twitter that Meta uh, unveiled. Um, and again, is uh, something that is sometimes blamed uh, for uh, what kinds of uh, content people are exposed to um, and, and polarization that, that might result. Um, but again, uh, you found uh, that this did not seem to change uh, people's attitudes. So what, what were the changes um, and, and why didn't they affect attitudes? Yeah. So it's really interesting when we were developing these studies. Um, so kind of early 2020 over the summer, um, and we wanted to do an experiment that could um uh, implement some sort of change to the, the feed ranking algorithms on Facebook and Instagram. Uh, reverse chronological ordering was, you know, something that quickly uh, came to mind for a lot of us. Um, I think one big reason why is that it's a really convenient and easy to characterize uh, baseline. It's a very simple rule. Um, you know, people intuitively understand it. It's also um, a feed ranking system that um, predates the engagement-based algorithms that are used today, right? So Facebook uh, and Twitter um, started out using these kinds of feeds. And it would give us like a really, I think, relatively straightforward um, comparison with the status quo personalized um, feed ranking algorithm. Um, and so there was sort of like a practical reason uh, for, for choosing that. And then as we were um, developing the studies and actually going in the field and um, collecting data, um, it started to be much more of an explicit um, policy proposal that we saw coming um, from a number of corners, um, you know, from uh, civil society um, and policy um, advocates of various kinds. Um, so this is a, an, an area where I think the, there are kind of, um, you know, scientific and practical reasons for, for choosing this intervention that started to um, align also with some of the policy discussion. Um, so that, that's sort of nice when that happens. Um, and so when we look at what actually uh, what we actually found when we um, did this experiment. So again, we're taking um, consented users, uh, a subset of which are randomly assigned to get this reverse chronological version of the feed. Um, so it's like the most recent feed in Facebook or Instagram um, instead of the default algorithmic feed. Um, we immediately see a bunch of changes from the, the platform data. So first, like with the reshares experiment, um, we see that um, the uh, use of the platform goes goes down, uh, so time spent goes down. Um, second, we see that engagement uh, of various kinds uh, with content also also goes down. Third, um, we see that um, content from friends and groups uh, becomes a greater share of people's feeds in the chronological version uh, relative to content from from friends. Um, uh, or, or mutual follows in the case of Instagram. Um, so you could probably um, imagine why why that might be the case. 
Um, so then moving on to different types of content that people are seeing in their feeds. So here things get really, um, really interesting. Um, so uh, one is, um, so referring, this is uh, related to the conversation about the like-minded paper. So when we switch people to the reverse chronological feed, the proportion of content that people see on average on their feeds from like-minded sources actually goes down. Um, so implying that um, there's something about the algorithmic feed that is um, promoting um, content from like-minded sources in one way or another. Um, and also the proportion of the feed from moderate or mixed sources goes, goes up in the reverse chronological feed relative to the algorithmic feed. Um, when we uh, look at political content or political news, we see that that goes up um, as a share of people's feeds on average in the chronological version of the feed. So that's also interesting because it suggests that, um, you know, the default algorithmic feed is, um, you know, somewhat suppressing or at least not encouraging um, political content on average for people. Uh, and then uh, another one that people might be interested in is that the proportion of people's feeds from untrustworthy sources uh, goes goes up. So it almost doubles. Um, and uh, so that's, that's an interesting finding as well. Some of these are from a very low base. So... Um, you know, the proportion of people's feeds um, at baseline from untrustworthy sources is uh, less than 3%. Um, the proportion of people's feeds that are political news um, is about 6, uh, 6%. Um, so some of these categories are pretty, pretty low. Um, but the direction of those changes um, might, be, might be somewhat surprising. Uh, and then when we move down to um, effects on individual attitudes, um, and, and knowledge and self-reported behaviors, um, we're again kind of getting this general picture of um, you know uh, zero um, or or null results um, and effect sizes that we can't really distinguish from from zero um, with, with a couple with a couple of of exceptions. Um, but that's the general picture. As for why that's the case, I think there are some similar reasons um, uh, to the like-minded paper. So. Um, we have a three-month intervention. Um, we're making some pretty big changes in terms of um, the order in which content is being presented and even which content people are seeing on their feeds. Um, but there's a lot of different changes happening simultaneously. Um, and I think the, the net effect of all of those were difficult to predict. And this is happening in the context of larger information environments that, by definition, we were not um, able to affect in the course of our studies. So as you mentioned, some of the changes that you made uh, reduced uh, engagement on the platform, and I don't think any of them increased uh, engagement. So that um, suggests that the algorithm is, is working as intended, at least uh, from the point of view of the company and, and maybe the, the users. Um, uh, is that because we're, we're sort of wrong about what we want to see when we're making these uh, proposals? Is it because we're trying to go against uh, uh, human nature? We know it, um, but we mm -hmm. want to stop it. Um, and, you know, does it suggest that, that we, to the extent that there's a problem here, that, that it's more about us uh, than about the platform? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I mean, first, I think it's really hard to disentangle the, the user from the, the algorithm. Um, user behavior um, is always going to take place in the context of, um, you know, in a sort of techno-social context. Um, and so um, everything is intertwined here, right? So user behavior is occurring in the context of um, algorithmic selection. 
uh, and vice versa. And, you know, with these studies, what we're able to do is we're able to change one thing and hold everything else constant. Um, and we can observe the differences in the user behavior. Um, but, um, but that only gives us one slice of a very complex picture. Um, you know, the other thing I would say is that, yes, I think there's a perspective here in which we're sort of observing revealed preferences um, that may or may not be um, the same as, as stated preferences that people might tell you, say, um, you know, in a survey or in sort of open, open responses. Um, but my understanding actually is that um, at least uh, Meta um, in some of their, um, you know, more recent updates to their, um, their algorithm does take into account uh, user surveys, which ask, you know, about longer term satisfaction with the platform. Um, and I'm sure that other platforms do something similar. And I think the reason is that um, there has been a lot of criticism um, that um, these ranking algorithms and perhaps um, recommendation algorithms on other platforms are um, so strongly, um, uh, you know, fine tuned to people's um, short term and immediate satisfaction possibly at the, extents, uh, at the expense of longer term health. Um, and so, you know, what it might look like if we were to wait, um, you know, longer term and just like more general satisfaction with a platform um, than, than they are currently, I think it's hard to say. And I think that's something that could be answered with experiments that we, we didn't conduct. And that I hope that could be induct, conducted in the future. Um, so you're right, we did see um, decreases in platform use and engagement across the experiments that we ran um, in these studies that were published so far. Um, but to me, that doesn't kind of rule out um, the possibility that there are other changes um, to algorithmic systems that could, you know, improve things from a normative perspective, um, perhaps even from a subjective perspective of users without having um, such a, you know, uh, you know, such an effect, a negative effect on engagement. Um, so I think that's um, that's something that has yet to be fully explored. So of course we didn't um, run an experiment where we um, compared social media to uh, any other kind of media. Um, but as a as a casual observer, it does seem that the 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 studies of TV effects, both if you think of the Fox News studies and and some international studies as well, um, have tended to find um, larger effects on individual attitudes and and behavior. Uh, I asked my own Twitter followers in a very unscientific poll um, why they thought that. Was was and and the plurality answer was that the TV effects are are likely to be much larger. Um, but the second second one was that the social media studies were bad. So hopefully that one. That <laughs> isn't um, but but how would, how would you kind of characterize the state of, of that research and and that uh, same difference if you if you see it? Yeah, um, that's that was sort of my prior understanding of the state of the literature going into these studies. That basically effects uh, effects of television on on political outcomes seem to be somewhat at least somewhat stronger than the effects uh, of social media um this i mean we do have to keep in mind that the number of studies that credibly estimate social media effects is still pretty low even even after these um that that were just published um and so i think the there's a lot to learn and the literature is still developing um but I wouldn't, I really wouldn't strongly contradict um, that characterization that 
um, it seems that TV effects are stronger than social media effects um, on, on on a certain range of political outcomes that have been have been studied. Um, I mean, another interesting point to keep in mind here, though, is if you just look at um, the raw amount of time on average that people spend on TV uh, versus social media in the U.S., um, people on average still spend way more, much more time watching TV. <laughs> um, so, so you know, um, and that means it's still really important. Um, and so, uh, again, uh, I think the important findings that we have found in these studies on, um, you know, the effects of Facebook and Instagram uh, should still be taken in the context of a, a wider information ecosystem that includes things like television, radio, uh, and, and of course, podcasts. Another uh, finding that you emphasized um, that could explain uh, the, the difference is that um, very little of people's feeds is, is usually politics um, or, or news about, uh, about politics. Um, what, so the kind of bubbles that we were investigating, that you were investigating here were, were mostly between uh, the left and, and the right. Um, but of course, there's also potentially a, a political bubble that includes um, most of us and, and doesn't include um, anyone else? Any anything to say about that that storyline? Is that maybe reinforced by your your findings? Yeah, I mean, one of the clearest findings I think that comes out of all of these studies, uh, and it's just a descriptive one, is how relatively unimportant politics is. Just if you look at the share of content that people see um, and and engage with, um, and I think that's very sobering and an important reminder to those of us who, you know, think, talk and write about politics, um, that for a lot of people, that's actually uh, not constituting the vast majority of how they experience um, social media. Um, I'll just um, point out again, um, one, I think, very vivid illustration of that from the the chronological feed uh, experiment that we ran. So again, you know, at baseline in the control group, um, something like six percent of people's feeds is, um, you know, anything approaching political news. Um, maybe thirteen to fourteen percent is is political in one way or another, according to the classifiers that we used. Um, moving moving people to the reverse chronological feed, so not taking people's past engagement into account. Uh, actually increases the share of um, political content and political news that people see. So that suggests that when you design algorithms um, that predict what um, you know, predict what they think you want to see, you're actually seeing less politics. Um, so obviously, there's a group of us that I think are getting more politics because that's what the algorithm would predict that we want. But you know, we're just a mi- minority of people on these platforms. So in the, the final article um, that was a more descriptive, you found uh, that conservative users on, on Facebook uh, were more in a, a bubble of news content um, than uh, users uh, on the left, um, and that that included uh, more, a lot more uh, posts uh, that were labeled uh, misinformation. So does that um, kind of finding revive the, the conventional story and just say that it, it needs to be needs to take account of this uh, a more specific uh, subset uh, of users. Um, and, and if so, if it's not being created by the algorithm, how was that that bubble created and reinforced? Yeah, well, you know, there's one aspect of that that I think um, 
doesn't really contradict the the previous understanding at all, which is that there are asymmetries in consumption of an engagement with untrustworthy content online. Uh, I mean, that's what uh, my previous uh, work with uh, a number of co-authors, I mean, including Brendan Nyhan, who's uh, a co-author in these studies, has found, which is that, um, uh, you know, regardless of what you think about the overall level of the consumption of untrustworthy content, um, these asymmetries are very clear in the data. Um, so, um, you know, in, in 2016, we, we found this uh, as well. There was a, a, a huge difference in the share of people's information diets online um, that were Trump supporters versus, versus Clinton supporters. Um, and so I think, you know, the, the evidence in the segregation paper um, that was just published is consistent with that. So the, you know, what's different though is um, until now, we really haven't had um, a good view onto what's happening on the platform itself. So we haven't really been able to um, look inside the black box and get a sense of what people are actually seeing on their feeds. That was always the big missing piece in research on um, exposure to an engagement with untrustworthy content. And um, yeah, and I think you know this paper really gives us um, unprecedented evidence on on that, and I think sort of unlocks a piece of the puzzle. So, given that you have been involved in that uh, past uh, research, you know, did this update your views at all about uh, social media responsibility for 2016 and that whole um, debate about uh, misinformation? And if you if you could also just address the conservative complaint, which is that. Um, you know, the mainstream media is disproportionately uh, composed of liberals, um, as might be the people who report misinformation um, on on Facebook. Um, so, you know, is this is this misinformation really missing? Yeah, well, so on the, the first question, um, you know, these are these are studies that we conducted in 2020. And we know that between uh, the 2016 election and the period when we conducted these studies, a lot changed in the way in the ways that platforms, uh, including uh, uh, including Facebook, so so Meta, um, uh, dealt with integrity issues, uh, so-called integrity issues, so involving untrustworthy content, uh, misinformation, um, hate speech, and etc. Um, and so a lot of uh, protection and safeguards were put in place that. Um, I think, um, you know, reduced exposure to a lot of content that was much more widespread in 2016. Uh, and so we're getting a window into uh, what people's experiences were, uh, were like um, after these measures were put into place. And so, you know, for that reason, um, and for others as well, I'm not sure that this gives us um, any reason to, you know, to second guess or revise our understanding of what happened in 2016. Um, so, I mean, the general takeaway, um, I mean, this is, this is my gloss, but I think the general takeaway is that uh, consumption of untrustworthy content online uh, was generally very low. It was very low as a share of people's online information diets. Um, however, there was a subset of people with strongly um, and mostly conservative um, information diets uh, that was consuming a lot of online misinformation. And so uh, that's consistent with the kind of segregation finding in the new paper where you do see that a huge amount of um, misinformation is being consumed by this subset of people. 
Um, however, that's not consistent um, with a narrative in which um, rampant online misinformation uh, swayed people's um, uh, vote choices. So that you had people who were kind of undecided between uh, one candidate or the other, and they encountered a bunch of fake news that um, pushed them towards Trump uh, in 2016. Um, so I think that's sort of the, the general takeaway. Um, nothing, you know, I think nothing that um, we found in the most recent paper, if you ask me, really changes that understanding. Um, I think, you know, one thing that I have personally updated my views on is the extent to which there is political segregation in general uh, on on Facebook, right? So um, kind of untrustworthy, kind of fake news aside, um, the extent to which, um, you know, the kinds of news that liberals are seeing and that conservatives are seeing is pretty different. Um, that seems to be much more pronounced, um, at least in 2020 on Facebook, um, than I think prior evidence, including some of my own work, has, has suggested. And, um, and again, I mean, this is the case where um, you know, better data and being able to observe things that we couldn't observe before have really um, uh, given us a fuller picture of what's of what's happening. In particular, with um, affordances and features of the Facebook platform um, that um, you know don't exist on other platforms or just on on the web, right? So, um, one of the big findings of the segregation paper is that pages and groups are um, driving uh, a good chunk of the political segregation. Uh, and so those are, you know, particularly Facebook native uh, features. And that to me is like a really important, um, that's a really uh, uh, important uh, aspect of this. And that, that, that adds to our understanding uh, of what's potentially driving these patterns. And back to the conservative explanation real quick, you know, they would say uh, that the mainstream media is at least center left. Um, and so what you've uh, uncovered is that conservatives are just a minority of the media and they're off uh, more by by themselves. Um, and to the extent that it's considered misinformation, part of it is just, again, you have the same labeling authorities that are talking about uh, that, that are from uh, disproportionately from the center left. Yeah. 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 Um, so the, in terms of how, um, we, you know, how we labeled content that was considered untrustworthy on the platform, we were going by, um, primarily by the third party fact checking, um, partnerships that meta, you know, had already set up and that they use, uh, for their own, um, integrity efforts. And so I know that a lot of the criticisms um, focus on the role of fact checkers, fact checkers being a part of the mainstream media, and whether there are any biases in the ways that um, fact checkers determine the, the veracity of particular claims. Um, so what I would say to that is that there have been a number of studies uh, independent of uh, these papers um, that we're talking about that have tried to look at whether um, if you give um, lay uh, members of the lay public, um, uh, you know, the same fact-checking tasks as as the professionals, do they come up generally with the same um, answers as to which claims are true and which claims are false? Um, and generally speaking, it seems like um, you can get politically balanced members of the public um, 
you know, go to, you know, move towards the same um, kinds of conclusions about which uh, stories are reliable and which stories aren't reliable. Um, and so, you know, A, I think that gives us more confidence that um, fact checking isn't just, you know, an arm of a political movement. Uh, and B, I think that gives, um, I think, some optimism about the ability to kind of crowdsource um, some of these efforts so that there's less reliance on, um, you know, relatively small groups of, of professionals um, and, and add some transparency to that process as well. So uh, tell us about uh, working with the social media uh, companies. Uh, this was pretty direct. I know that there's been a, a mixed history of, of success and failure uh, with that in the, in the social sciences. Um, so uh, to what extent did that affect what you were uh, able to, to do? Um, and, you know, is this likely uh, to, to be the start of, of better joint research? Yeah, I mean, to me, this was really the holy grail of research on social media and politics. I think many of us were you know, advocating one way or another for the ability to not only work with platform data, um, so going beyond um, kind of custom bespoke experiments and survey data, um, so working with real platform data, but also being able to um, work with the platforms themselves to make changes to people's platform experiences and then see what the results of those changes are. And I think that's been uh, really crucial uh, for the success and the validity of our studies, because um, while I think we can learn a lot by doing um, research you know, in the lab, um, in sort of artificial environments where we can really control every aspect of what study participants um, see and do, there is a crucial element of ecological validity that has always been missing. If you think about the things that you know we think really matter for um, people's experiences on social media, you know it's things like the social context, you know what your friends are sharing, um, you know people's awareness of uh, the audience for the things that they post and share, and those things are very very difficult to replicate in an artificial research setting, and so being able to do these on-platform experiments in which we can observe not only platform behavior, but also other individual level characteristics of these users, uh, including survey responses, um, is really unprecedented. And I think uh, a way forward for doing um, research, not only on social media and politics, but you could imagine any number of other incredibly important topics um, like um, you know, mental health and, and well-being, um, um, et cetera. So, um, you know, for me, I mean, this opened up the door to all sorts of research that um, I think is only beginning um, to to answer some really important questions that uh, researchers in the public have. Um, you know, in terms of working with the platforms, it's been for me, it's been great. Um, uh, the the way that the project was set up, um, I think. Uh, was, it was done with a lot of foresight and I think, um, you know, maximized the, um, the intellectual freedom that the, the academic partners had in their ability to, in our ability to design the studies and ask the questions that we thought were important. Um, and uh, it also um, protected the, the privacy of, of users um, and users' ability to consent to participation in the study and consent to the sharing 
of data. Um, and so I think, you know, we've kind of landed on a model that um, enables, uh, uh, you know, research on these important questions in a way that uh, safeguards a lot of the concerns that I think uh, the public um, has had about research in this area. So your uh, papers will appear uh, alongside uh, a lot of uh, chemistry and biology papers uh, <laughs> in Science and Nature, um, and they're not the first social media uh, papers to be uh, published there. Um, but obviously, if you just read the social media, the social science papers that were published in um, Science and Nature, you'd get a very unrepresentative cast of social science uh, mm -hmm. generally. So, so why why is it that the major journals um, are so interested in social media research compared to other areas of social science, um, and and how different is is working uh, with them uh, than social science journals? Yeah, that's a, an interesting question. So, I, I was looking at. Um, the issues of science that were published since uh, our papers came out. And actually the current cover of Science Magazine um, uh, shows a picture of wildfires in Australia. And I think that sort of illustrates um, what these, these journals are interested in, which are you know, timely, uh, timely issues of public concern. So, you know, in this example, climate change um, and um, the extent to which that intersects with cutting edge research, regardless of the field. And social media is, I think, one of many topics that um, that fall into that category. Um, and uh, so I think if you look within, you know, political science or within communication or economics, so the, the disciplines that are represented by the, the authors on these papers, this is obviously not a representative subset. Um, but if you look at the kinds of timely topics of public concern that um, these large inter interdisciplinary journals um, are interested in, then I think social media and elections fall squarely into that. And anything uh, different people should know about working with the journals or the review process that kind of changes what 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 we all see in the end. Yeah, well, there are a few, I think, obvious differences. So um, the way you write articles for these journals is very different uh, from uh, the journals that we normally publish in in, in political science. Um, they're, they're much shorter. Um, a lot of the um, details on methods and measurement goes into a very long appendix that, you know, many readers will never uh, read. And um, uh, so, so that's one big difference. Um, in terms of the review process, what's interesting is that um, you are very likely to encounter reviewers who are from different fields. Um, so I don't know for sure, but um, it seems likely that, you know, uh, at least a few of our reviewers were from um very different disciplines coming, you know, from fields with different methodological approaches, um, you know, assumptions, uh, et cetera. And so that leads to, I think, uh, a more unpredictable uh, and challenging review process, but one that I think is also um, more, more fulfilling and ultimately more rigorous um, because you're really getting, um, you're, you're getting very close reads and you're getting critical feedback from many different angles. And these are angles that you don't, usually get when you just stay within your your discipline um and so you know i found the review process to be um incredibly rigorous certainly the most rigorous that i've ever experienced um uh thus far um so i think you know that that's sort of like one of the the under the hood differences and then you know in terms of what people see i think you know the articles just read different and 
uh, and feel different. Um, and that's that's because the there there's a bigger audience and a more interdisciplinary audience um, than we're typically used to um, when we're publishing in political science. So you're also uh, publishing the work at a time when there's increased calls for regulation of of social uh, media, um, and I happen to be. Uh, at Chautauqua this week, where there's a lot of uh, discussion of, of free speech, and so people self-selected to to attend that week. Um, and yet, um, when one of the speakers asked about um, social media regulation, um, uh, there was a lot more support than for um, other kinds of potential um, infringements on on free speech or, or restrictions. So. You know, to what extent, um, you know, are we too quick to to jump on the, the the platforms, or why is it that we we tend to kind of separate that uh, as an issue in terms of um, speech protections and thinking about well, the the the, the platforms serve this societal role uh, in the in the spread of misinformation, or maybe that's just partisanship or, or a bias that individuals have. But I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, social media regulation is an interesting area because. It still seems to me like a lot of people across the political spectrum support some regulation or some policy change or another. The question is whether we can get some consensus or at least some overlap on on what something feasible might be. And so um, so it's not so much like one side wants to do something and the other side doesn't want to do anything. Um, and so that's already a different dynamic. Um, but... Uh, and so I think the fact that a lot of people are, you know, seem at least willing to want to do something means that there's a sort of search for um, easy to understand fixes uh, that everyone can get on board with um, and that perhaps don't have obvious, you know, partisan ramifications. And, you know, recently that has led to discussions about algorithms. Um and there are some good reasons for this, of course. Um, algorithms uh, of the kind that we're studying are opaque to people. Um, they are proprietary. People don't fully understand how they work. Um, and um, as we're seeing, they have effects that are unpredictable um, and um, uh, and also um, perhaps counterintuitive. What we, I think, want to, one of the takeaways that I think um, it's important to have from these papers is that, um, you know, you can you can try to implement um, something relatively straightforward, like replacing uh, the, you know, algorithmic feed ranking system with reverse chronological version. Um, but the there are going to be a number of different effects on people's experiences of the platform uh, that are, you know, difficult to sort of easily um, characterize or predict. And there are going to be unintended consequences. Uh, and so to the extent that, you know, there, there were hopes that there might be a silver bullet, like we could um, turn this dial um, and, you know, all of the kind of polarizing content and, um, you know, the misinformation um, and the hate speech and everything that we were worried about is all going to go down at the same time. I think we're showing that things are a bit more complicated in the sense that affects sometimes um, uh, move in in opposite directions. There are trade-offs in terms of whether you know you prefer to um, you know you prefer to prioritize, say, reducing untrustworthy content um, uh, versus other kinds. And there are just unintended consequences. And so I think um, 
what we're showing is that if there were hopes that there would be kind of a simple solution that everyone could get on board with, um, that that might not be the case, and it might be less the case um, the more we learn about the effects of these systems. So, of course, we're always uh, trying to learn about a general topic, in this case, uh, the effects of social media, um, but we always have a a specific uh, domain that we're able to study. And for you, it's almost all Facebook in 2020 with a little bit of Instagram as well. Uh, So uh, those are... um, those are uh, a lot larger uh, than the, than some of the social media studies that we sometimes uh, t- uh, try to um, generalize from to to other kinds of platforms. Um, but it does it does raise the question of how widely these kinds of findings could apply. Um, on the one hand, you know we might always just want to caveat that we studied them here in this place um, at right. this time, but. On the other, um, you know, it certainly seems that a lot of these debates we've been having, especially uh, about Twitter since Elon Musk uh, took over, but also about uh, some of the new competitors, might be a little overblown uh, in terms of how much uh, these changes about the algorithm are really going to to change the content of the platform versus just who's the user base for the platform uh, and what are they interested in? What do you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm always a little hesitant to generalize, you know, from findings on one platform to another or from one time to another. Um, I guess I would use this as an opportunity to make a related point, which is that we, you know, we didn't study all the possible channels for political influence um, that, that, you know, that might be plausible, right? So we're primarily looking at effects um, of, uh, you know, effects of some algorithmic changes um, or feature changes on these platforms on individuals' behavior, engagement, and um, and some individual level um, outcomes like attitudes, opinions, knowledge, and self-reported behaviors. Um, what we're not looking at, um, for example, are um, the effects of these systems on the behavior of political elites and leaders. Um, and how that might affect the, you know, the incentives or behavior of other actors in the political system or in other elements of the, the media ecosystem. And I think that's what makes it a little difficult to extrapolate from, say, Facebook or Instagram to Twitter, um, is that Twitter, um, you know, while it has um, lower penetration than, than Facebook, right? So less than a quarter of um, U.S. adults um, use Twitter, um, according to the, the latest Pew data that I've seen, um, you know, the there's a huge overrepresentation of um, political elites, journalists, you know, media elites on Twitter, um, and you know, historically they've they've often used it to, um, you know, to to learn from each other. Um, you know, there's a diffusion of um, ideas, um, you know, catchphrases, um, strategies perceptions, um, you know, sense of what's important, what isn't important, et cetera. And so I think it's really hard to to know kind of whether the changes on the Twitter platform, the platform formerly known as Twitter, um, over the past um, eight, you know, eight to 10 months um, have had an effect on those kinds of of mechanisms. Um, But I think if you think that it had an effect, it would be those kinds of mechanisms that we really um, weren't testing at all in these studies. 
So that uh, related to a, a question I had after reading all of this was if all of this is um, in some sense a, a downgrade or a continuation of a, of a downgrade that uh, research has uh, put on the effects of social media on, on polarization and these other measures um, uh, of attitudes and behavior, you know, what, what should be upgraded? Uh, what, what else is, is out there that maybe people are paying less uh, attention to? Yeah. So yeah, definitely, you know, uh, uh, the mechanism that I just referred to, right. So effects on, um, elites, I think that's, that's really important. Um, uh, another one, um, that I'll mention, and, and this is one that, um, is going to be explored in, um, forthcoming papers in this collaboration. So, so some of, some of the outstanding questions, um, are going to be addressed in other papers, um, that, that will come out at some point as a result of this, um, collaboration. Um, but I would say kind of one really important outstanding question is, um, uh, is focusing on, uh, groups that might be small, you know, as a share of the, the user population of these platforms, but large enough in absolute numbers. Um, so when you're studying social media, you're in a very interesting space where, you know, you could say, oh, you know, only 10% or 20% of users um, see XYZ or do XYZ. Um, but when you're talking about a platform that has, you know, more than 200 million um, monthly active users, you know, uh, you know, 5%, um, that adds up to a lot of people. And um, I think research that focuses on um, relevant subgroups and you know the particular dynamics of those subgroups and and the effects of different platform uh, features and algorithms on those subgroups i think that's a really important uh, piece of the story here is that like uh, you know everybody who votes in a congressional primary could actually be you know in a pretty small group or exactly. people who vote in elections yeah exactly and um and you know you think about the you know traditional sample size for a research study in political science, you know, maybe a thousand or a few a few thousand people. So these have typically been groups that are really hard to study with any kind of precision using kind of the standard uh, research design toolbox. Um, given the kinds of sample sizes that we're operating with, which are you know an order of magnitude uh, larger or more. Um, we do have some opportunity to um, look at some of these uh, more important uh, subgroups um, and, and to be able to say a little bit more um, about whether, um, you know, social media effects that might not matter for the average user might actually be more consequential for, um, for other kinds of users. And so I think there's many questions of that kind, um, which, which I think are really important for future research. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, here are the episodes I would recommend next, all linked on our website. Did Facebook really polarize and misinform the 2016 electorate? How online media polarizes and encourages voters? How news and social media shape American voters? How misperceptions and online norms drive cancel culture? And how Fox News Channel spreads its message and persuades viewers? Thanks to Andy Guest for joining me. Please check out Like-Minded Sources on Facebook Are Prevalent But Not Polarizing and How Do Social Media Feed Algorithms Affect Attitudes and Behavior in an Election Campaign. And then listen in next time. Mm-hmm.